Hello, I hope you enjoy this recording and consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, my talks are offered entirely without charge and supported by donations only. Please feel invited to stop by dharmapunksnyc.com, that's spelled with an X, to check out a chapter from my book, Unsubscribe, which arrives November 2017. And thank you. So the Buddha in the Kavada Sutta has uh, a wonderful claim that at first seems unlikely about what someone who's been practicing a lot can apparently achieve. And the sutta goes, with a developed mind, one can become different beings, appear and vanish. You could move through mountains like moving through space. You could dive in and out of the earth as if it were water. You could fly through the air like a winged bird. You could touch the sun or the moon. So, that's a lot of tall claims. And uh, I will be the first to say that this is by no means meant to be taken literally as if you can literally fly or uh, walk through mountains or swim through the earth. The canon constantly reminds us of the fallibility, the fragility, the impermanence of the body. So the idea that the Buddha would be claiming that we can somehow transcend the physical body and do things that are associated with miracles would be thematically not consistent at all with the Buddha's <clears throat> very uh, clear understanding that we are in very fragile incarnations or bodies that can fall apart pretty much at any time. Nor is the Buddha proposing an, an escapist fantasy that we can simply imagine <clears throat> to escape from difficult experiences in life, completely check out and live in fantasy realms where we can uh, move through space um, or dive and swim through the earth or fly. There is definitely a creative imaginistic quality to what he's pointing towards, but it's not an escapist entirely idea where we use spiritual practice as a way to dissociate from painful emotions or difficult interpersonal experiences. This Teaching is under the listing of Vinana Anidisanam, and that is what's called creative, limitless, boundaryless consciousness. Another way you could put it would be playful consciousness. So I think I'm going to take my usual approach, in fact I know I am, and try to introduce this theme from a contemporary Western psychological perspective and then we'll uh, start blending 
what the Buddha is asking us to do from a psychological perspective, and I'll try to explain why it's so important to have creativity and imagination in one's life. So, after birth, when we attach to a caregiver, we experience a state of what uh, some call jointedness or symbiosis. It's a bond jointedness where the infant cannot tell the difference between where it ends and the mother begins. There is a fluidity. It's a state of self that is inconceivable from our adult perspective. And I think I'll explain why that is. This is a bond without self or other. It's a state of being where there's no sense of inside or outside. There is nothing but continuity. And while the infant sees the eyes and the face of the mother, that's this first sort of drive <clears throat> for an infant to be seen and bond and connect. That's what achieves security. But the child does not, we as infants do not perceive the mother as outside of us. As Winnicott says, we're in a state of grandiosity almost, king baby, where every need we have, not every need, but a lot of the needs are anticipated by the mother. So the mother looks at her child, she sees it begin to fidget or start to make the signs of hunger or thirst or it's wet itself. And before the child very often even needs to uh, cry or even begin to overtly express its need for something, the mother begins even to anticipate what the child is looking for. So, of course, this state, which we start our lives in, unless we were born into Bulgarian orphanages, which were famous for how little contact and care they gave to uh, the orphans therein, but a lot of us start off our lives in this symbiotic, jointed state of being deeply intertwined, interconnected, without any sense of uh, there being anything outside of me. The child at first just experiences the mother as a continuity. So eventually the mother has to uh, introduce, of course, over time, the infant to the idea that its needs won't always be met immediately or anticipated, and that eventually the child will have to uh, understand that it will need to develop self-soothing tools to stay in the world when its needs aren't met immediately. So the way the mother does this that is healthiest is she inserts these little pauses before the child cries before answering it. Eventually the child uh, starts sleeping in another room and so the child cries and it might be a while before a parent comes in and soothes the child. So, uh, 
the child begins to gradually, over time, incrementally understand the difference between what is me and what is not me, what is self, what is not self, what is internal feelings versus what are things that other people can't see, i.e. shared reality. So with this disconnection, the child, if it's done far too, if it's done too quickly, the child becomes disenchanted and scared because um, the external world is suddenly thrust upon the child, according to Winnicott, and the child becomes uh, fears its annihilation, fears it for its vulnerability, and also. If it's done too quickly, the child is stuck with very painful emotions. Our emotions in infancy, because we're so right hemispheric, are felt like these flooding waves of somatic, physiological experience. We're overwhelmed. And if our mother just suddenly one day, or the father just suddenly one day doesn't respond, you know, and we're left with these emotions, the child feels this extreme sense of unrest and distress, and then what the child will do is if this pattern happens where suddenly there's a break in the caregiving bond that's very sudden, then the child will develop what Winnicott called a false self in an attempt to get attention and to win back the parents' uh, gaze and connectedness and touch, the child will start amplifying its emotions or will give up, will create a different state of being, theatrical, or amplify its emotional state so that it can get attention. Because children, if they are too suddenly uh, separated from the parent, they find it to be a terrifying state. Again, outside external reality, people are beyond our control. Uh, even cats can seem terrifying to an infant. And even more so, the internal feelings, our emotions, when we don't have somebody to soothe us, feel like these overwhelming states. So to soothe the transition between this grandiose initial state where the child feels completely connected to the mother, there's no difference, there's no inside or outside, there's no disconnection, and that secondary state where the child is now sleeping in its own room, spending a lot, of, a lot more time not in the proximity of the mother, wandering throughout the house on its own, eventually going to daycare centers and so forth, and with babysitters, to soothe this transition, there is what's called a transitional object. And Winnicott was the great developmental psychologist who gave that its name. And in conventional language, we call it the security blanket or the teddy bear or the thumb that we suck. It's <clears throat> essentially something that the child claims as a representation for its mother. And so the child drags around with it, this blanket that represents both the feeling that there's something, someone else there, even though the blanket is just a symbol, and it also represents the bond between the child and the mother.
<clears throat> now this is a transitional object in the sense that while the child is using it to feel connection, at the same time it, it knows that it's not its mother. So it's holding the object for soothing, for a sense of connectedness, but in one level the child begins to realize my mom, my father are not here, but it still on the other hand feels not alone by the presence of the teddy bear or the security blanket. So are you following me so far? This, did I lose? All right. So some of you are new and probably thinking, what the fuck? Is this a... <laughs> I thought this was a Dharma Bunks Buddhist. But that's just how I teach. I'm sorry. Um, so, the, uh, the soothing object helps the child also begin to have this gradual uh, object where, that doesn't feel entirely external, like other people or other objects in the world, but it's not entirely internal, like an emotion or a feeling or a fantasy. The transitional object, the toy for the child, is somewhere in between. The child can bestow onto its teddy bear or its security blanket an entire personality, can give it a symbolic name, can interact with it like it has a personality or a consciousness. So in that sense, this, this transitional object creates a bridge between internal and external. And again, if we make that bridge too sudden, we begin to worry if our internal states will be acceptable externally to other people. So we need to have a transition. <clears throat> so Winnicott said that besides a transitional object, we also need to have a transitional space. A transitional space is similar to the transitional object, but unlike the object, the space is an arena where the child can play with a mother, with toys, uh, with little books, with pop-up books. So this playing space, again, uh, bridges the child's inner state with the outside world and with the mother. And so in this play space, the child learns that it can project its emotions and its experience onto objects and interact with the mother. And this transitional state gives the child a place to work through its fears and its anxieties. For an example, to use my own life, uh, I grew up in a family where my father was a, uh, before he got sober, was a scary, pretty violent drunk. And so when I was an infant and would draw, um, I would draw these like really singular, big, terrifying figures and then little, tiny little figures. And of course, I was working through, even as an insult, as a young, young infant, I was working through the trying to establish meaning and understand what was going on in my family. So I was repeating it. And I would also reenact some of the dramas between 
my parents, my dad's sudden rage with my toys and would start to, with other kids or with other adults, start to attack them with my toys, trying to make sense of the violence in my home life. It was a very important ability for any child to work through the things that disturb the child creatively in the presence of other people, not keep those emotions within, repressed, so that they become dysregulated. Before we learn to truly disclose our experience to others through language, we disclose our experience not just through emotions, but also through play. That's where the child tells the mother how it's interpreting, or the therapist, <laughs> or the, the kindergarten teacher, or the other parent. That's where the child tells other people what its experience is and how it's turning its experience into meaning. Some children could experience a caregiver being drunk and turn it into something different than what I did. I turned it into this kind of God's... My dad became a kind of Godzilla figure in my, my early little play, but other children might have made sense of it another way. So in this transitional space, we're learning how to make sense of life, how to turn life, our experience, into an interpretation with meaning, and that's what human beings need to do. Our left hemisphere, which is the realm that interprets life and turns it into stories and narratives, is how we make sense of our lives. And without our left hemisphere, we feel very, very vulnerable, and experiences that happened in the past still seem present, like they're happening now. The right hemisphere is vital, of course. It's where we express all our emotional needs and connect with nature and get so many of our core needs met. So it's really important that we have this realm where we're not vulnerable, where we can process how we feel about our lives, the terror of going into schoolyards with other kids, uh, the fear of uh, any tension between our parents. And we reenact our lives in these play spaces, but through a creative play with our toys, with our blocks, with drawing, with crayons. We essentially retell our lives, and that, what, that makes us profoundly human in that we can translate experience into stories. So, this play space is a refuge for us. In Buddhism, there's only three refuges traditionally. One is meditation, learning to use the breath and mindfully being aware of the body so that we can be with painful emotional experiences and alleviate them through various techniques, including modifying how we breathe. The Dharma is a refuge because it gives us interpretations and insights into the nature of life, and those insights help alleviate our need to figure everything out and obsessively try to, try to uh, figure out why is this happening to me. The Dharma reminds us that everything is not personal. 
We all go through disappointments, frustrations, difficult times, joys, happiness, connections, and <clears throat> taking it personally causes so much unnecessary obsessive ideation. And finally, the Sangha is our ability to connect with other people. Very often in our lives, other people will not be safe. And so having a spiritual community, whether it's 12-step, refuge recovery, Buddhist, a Unitarian church, a, a Hindu gathering, a Quaker, it doesn't have to be Buddhist, but having a safe community is very vital. But the fourth refuge I would propose is play, is creativity, is imagination. Not escapist imagination, where we're checking out from reality. The child's play space enacts its experience and turns its experience into something that helps it digest and understand what's going on in its life. Very often in play, we're also actually using what's present before us. We're using uh, musical instruments or drawing or our bodies to dance or some, something that's actually present. We're not checking out of all of our experience, disconnecting from our body and going into this make-believe realm. We're actually in creativity not escaping anything. We're translating and making meaning of our lives the same exact way an artist does. An artist takes their life and translates it into an expression that in some way turns overwhelming experience into symbols. And because we are all symbol-making beings as humans, we look at other people's symbols and we can begin to uh, empathize, understand, and we can even learn ourselves how to make our own symbols and interpretations of our lives that help us uh, make sense of our existence and our experience. I would propose that the most real inaction of our lives and of our true selves is in creativity. Because if we think ourself or our core at any moment identity, which is always changing over time, but if we believe that our identity is our thinking, then we're completely ignoring the somatic, emotional components of ourselves. On the other hand, if we say it's my emotions that are my true self, then we're ignoring our ability to think and tell stories. But in creativity, we're using both. The creative moment where we draw, sing, paint, uh, uh, share a story that we write, dance, do anything. We are uh, using both our emotional, our true unconscious associations, our thinking all together. And when you look at the fMRI scans of someone engaged in a creative activity, it is truly, along with spiritual practice, the one time in life where the entire brain is lighting up. Left and right hemispheres, midbrain, all it's like a Christmas tree lighting up. Also, when we are laughing at jokes, it lights up. So, 
Unfortunately, of course, we can't stay in this realm forever. We also have to have realms where we're not in this very imaginative expression of our emotional, where our emotional experience and our lived experience are combined to create a, uh, a sort of retelling of our lives. The in-between world can never supplant or get rid of the times that we have to go out into the world and make connections with people and uh, work. But if we don't have this realm, or I'll tell you what sometimes, before I even go there, what sometimes happens is, uh, or very often happens is, children have this innate ability to play, but then there's a stage around second or third grade, <clears throat> maybe a little later, where we start encountering other kids who shame us for our creativity, our own vulnerable drawings, our songs that we sing, the, uh, the, the uh, expression of our, our core feelings. And so we begin to consume pre-digested fantasies in place of creativity. We start to purchase comic books and watch Nickelodeon or, or Marvel or Disney, and we stop the ability to create our own imaginative interpretations of life and the world, and we start digesting other people's mass-produced so that we can get together with other kids and the hard work of... <clears throat> of having our creativity be looked at by other people who might reject it. Instead of that, we start just sharing the same sort of homogenized creative uh, commodified uh, dramas. And even if they're fun, like... Uh, Toy Story or Wally, -E, it's still kind of sad because the investment in giving up our ability to spontaneously translate and express our internal feelings and emotions in conjunction with our thoughts, with objects in the world and with other people is for me the most truly authentic moment of the human life. So, our goal is to redevelop in our meditation, in our spiritual practice, and in our lives a personal, to reclaim that right, to express ourselves creatively. If we don't do it, Winnicott proposed that there are severe psychological ramifications. To quote, uh, Winnicott said that the task of reali accepting reality is never completed, nor should it be, 
from the strain of relating our inner and outer realities, we need relief. We need relief from being in this what's in here and worrying about the shared reality out there and having no bridge. We need to have that creative play in our life. We need, he says, an intermediate area of experience. This area is a direct continuity with the play of the small child with its mother. And Winnicott beautifully, it was literally, I can't, uh, I didn't take the quote, but it was so moving to me. Winnicott said that the role of the therapist and the spiritual teacher and the mentor was to recreate for people a play space where they could go in and once again be vulnerable and express themselves without worrying if what they were saying or expressing uh, looked adult or was compliant or made other people think that we were sane. In this fear that our creativity will make us look insane, we lose the ability to, to present to others the most important, vulnerable, meaningful parts of ourselves. Now, if we're not creative, what we can do is bring that sense of awe and that sense of participation in simply looking at art or simply being creative in the way that when, when we are engaged with uh, any kind of art, not constrain ourselves to try to figure out what it means, but allow ourselves to creatively interpret experience in any way we want. For me, the worst part of going to movies, and I pretty much, I like to watch movies at home, <laughs> because, well, it's a long story, but, <laughs> alright, I, I grew up, my mom was a cinema lover, but she was a little Jewish woman, and before the beginning of every foreign movie, which she would take me to, and they were always inappropriate for a kid my age, but she would take me to these movies, and whenever people would laugh or make fun of the trailers, my mom would go, shh, in this neurotic voice. And these huge people would start screaming at my little Jewish mother, and sometimes they'd look at me like, as if because, you know, they weren't going to beat up her. But me, a nine-year-old boy, I think they thought, well, that's fair game. <laughs> so, so to this day, I just enjoy watching movies at home. You're like, oh my God, this is the most neurotic guy ever. <laughs> so, in challenging ourselves to not, when we go to a movie, try to figure out what it means, but to play with it, to bring awe and wonder and just to allow it to sit with us and be with us without having to kill it by interpreting it. When we interpret life in one emotion or one idea or one message, we kill our experience. We turn it into an idea rather than a felt, lived, emotional, vibrant experience. So I never, when I go to see art, and my dad was a painter, so I go to see a lot of art, um, I never try to figure out what anything means. I just try to let it sink in. And that's another way of being creative even if we don't have that space in our lives where we 
can confidently express ourselves in some way. So I'm encouraging you all to not just think of exercise and meditation and interacting with other people as core foundational principles for having well-being, which they are, but besides exercise, yoga, uh, meditation for processing emotions, interacting with other people for co-regulation, a vital part is returning to that playful, joyous, spontaneous expression of how you feel, manifesting it externally, or at least don't force yourself to try to come up with hard interpretations of life that other people will appreciate. Allow yourself to go a little crazy. Thank you for listening, and now let's meditate. So closing the eyes, And see if you can just land in this moment. It's that feeling one might have after traveling a long distance. To a place you've been looking forward to see, experience. So you arrive and you put down, <clears throat> after you leave the plane or the train and you take a drive to some location where you put your bags down and then you find a seat with a beautiful view and you sit down and you try to release from your body any need to go anywhere, do anything. You try to let go of any need to be appealing or please anyone, to put on any emotion just to get acceptance. You no longer have anywhere to go, nothing to do. No one to perform for or appease. But the truth is you can have that feeling anytime you remind yourself that each moment in life is just as valuable as any other moment and is really Every moment is an opportunity for some form of liberation from suffering.
let this moment be one of those sacred times where you truly arrive in life and let go of any of the behaviors that desiccate a moment. The way we desiccate or deplete a moment is by abandoning it and thinking about another moment in the future. What will I do sometime that's not now? So if you want to honor your life, honor it in the moment that you find yourself removing the felt need to bring up moments from the past as memories or moments imagined of the future as plans and just when those thoughts come up, just note them, don't take them personally, just nod to them and then return to the sanctity of this moment. Right here and now, there's nothing threatening happening. There's nothing that merits concern So to stay with this moment, sometimes it's very useful to have a sensation to keep in the foreground of your awareness, which not only settles the mind, because when you focus, it helps establish a state of awareness that's less anxious. So one sensation could be the sound of the cars, the life of the streets below, drifting into the room. Don't go out and try to find sounds. Just allow them to arrive, even when there's no clear sound present. Just wait. And then when sounds occur, don't visualize what's creating them. Just listen. Listening keeps awareness spacious.
Or you could use the breath. Just feeling into the body, not visualizing how your body looks. Just feel the sensations of expansion and contraction. Try to let go of any image of your body and just note the movement associated with inhalation and exhalation. And if you'd like, you could count one on the in, two on the out, and then three on the pause in between. Four on the out, four on the in, five on the out, six on the pause, and so, etc., up into whatever number you want, and then start again. Put the emphasis of attention or your effort into the pause between the out-breath and the next in, that's when we tend to drift away from the breath and be lured into a fantasy or a memory. While creativity is fine, fantasies completely remove us from the present. Creativity doesn't. And when your mind drifts away from the sounds or the breath, which it will, don't add any criticism or judgment of yourself at all. Not only is it very natural and normal, but it doesn't mean that you're doing anything wrong in the slightest. The way you respond when that happens is important. If you feel encouraged that you've mindfully become aware, feel good about that and just bring your awareness back to the breath or the sounds. Or you could use a metaphrase. May all beings be peaceful, live with ease. May I feel peaceful and live with ease.
So at this point, we're going to engage in a creative meditation exercise. I'd like you to suspend your <clears throat> adult perspective for a moment. And imagine, if you will, that you are a traveler from a distant galaxy and through some amazing machine you have been transported into a human body for the first time. From where you come, you're in or were in an entirely different state of being, but now you have landed into a human form. And for the first time, you're hearing sounds. You're feeling body sensations. Lights are flickering behind your closed eyelids. Feelings of tightness, and contraction, and release and are happening in the muscles of your abdomen, around the heart, the throat, the face, expressing the underpinnings of emotions. And even thoughts are being generated on their own. But you've landed in this arena and you can explore anything you want from a place of wonder and awe, having never been in a human body before. What would that be like? What would you want to observe? Don't try to turn it into a single interpretation or idea, just in this amazing capability to land in a human body, to have a consciousness that can observe all that's happening. Just take in this experience in the most creative, imaginative way you can.
so at this point, very slowly, whenever you're ready, open your eyes just enough to take in the ground in front of you. And see if you can integrate sight into this creative experience of the present where you allow your both emotional and cognitive needs to intertwine. And whenever you're ready, you can look up, reorient yourself, 